The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Brain and Body Still Rebooting edition. It's Wednesday, October 17th, 2018. On today's show, Private Life is a feature film dramedy about a middle-aged couple trying to make a baby desperately. It stars Paul Giamatti and Katherine Hahn. And then Doctor Who is nothing if not a TV institution. It was booted first in 1963. It's been rebooted over and over again since. Only this time, Who isn't a he? The new series stars a she, Jodie Whittaker, and finally Kanye West and the politics of celebrity politics. Joining me today is Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, uh, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. One thing, guys, I had a weird dream last night. For some reason, I kept seeing the numbers 4819. Whoa. Is this a Doctor Who reference? All right, let's dig in. Private Life is the new feature film from the writer-director Tamara Jenkins. She of uh, Slums of Beverly Hills fame, among other movies. Uh, This one follows a couple of middle-aged artsies as they go through tortuous and torturous uh, processes of fertility treatment. Come to understand, I think, maybe maybe I'm wrong, that they're in search of a baby uh, as a way of uh, evading one another. The movie stars Paul Giamatti, Catherine Hahn, and Kaylee Carter, a first-timer, as their bar dropout niece, whose eggs they may want to harvest. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. We're still going through all that fertility stuff. I thought my mom said you guys were trying to adopt. Uh, yeah, we are. Um, but uh, recently, we decided it might be a good idea to just try everything all at once. Because, uh, you know, we're not getting any younger. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. It's not over, though. You guys are going to keep trying, right? Well... Now the doctor is suggesting uh, a different approach altogether. My God, my mom told me you guys had a lot going on, but I had no idea. This is a really bad time for me to be crashing here, isn't it? No, not at all. Really? Because I have friends in Bushwick. Oh, we're so glad that you're here. You're sure? Yes. Me too. I love you guys. Oh, ooh, does anybody mind if I get started on the crossword? Actually, we wanted to ask you about your eggs. Scrambled is good, but however you guys do them is fine with me. Dana Stevens, you are a film critic. What did you make of this movie? Well, okay, first I want to say that that clip we just heard um, is in a way illustrative of the movie, but in a way not, because it sounds much sweeter and warmer from that nice little interaction than than a lot of this movie is. And I think that's going to be the interesting thing to talk about is how this movie hits its tone toward its characters. But I liked it. I really liked it. I borderline loved it. I think that I have some reservations that would keep it from being sort of top 10 material. But it was just exciting to me that Tamara Jenkins has a new movie after 11 years. Steve, you were saying that she has made The Slums of Beverly Hills and other movies. She's actually only made one other feature besides this and Slums of Beverly Hills, which was The Savages 11 years ago, that brother-sister movie with with Laura Linney and um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, and that movie was called The Savages because the two characters were surnamed Savage, but it was also a really savage movie in some ways and did not love its characters and did not encourage us to love them. What I'm trying to figure out about Private Life is is how I feel about its relationship to its characters and, and our own. And, uh, and I'm curious to hear what, what y'all think of that, because 
you think that you know what world this movie takes place in, tonally speaking, that it's sort of the uh, the warm, cozy, white, bohemian, intellectual New York of, you know, early Woody Allen movies or Nora Ephron movies, um, a world in which people are neurotic and slightly uh, ironized, maybe, but ultimately cuddlesome characters. But then as the movie goes on, I feel like that feeling starts to curdle. And as you say, Steve, you start to wonder, why do these two people want a baby? Should we be even rooting for them to have a baby? Are they people who even know themselves and, and each other well enough to be able to bring up a child? And uh, and I appreciate that the movie suspends you in that space, but I'm not quite sure in the end how much that makes me love it, love them, love myself for loving it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yes, mm. that was so well put. I mean, I think I loved this movie, even though all of those questions strike me as good ones. And let me see if I can explain why. I think part of what... I think the movie is fundamentally warm-hearted toward these characters, even though... It sees the ways in which they are selfish and thoughtless and a little bit monstrous um, in, in various capacities. And they let their hunger for a child blind them to the consequences of some of the things they are doing and asking for. But like lots and lots and lots of flawed people have children. And so the fact of their flaws... Um, it seems like it's revealed with a gimlet eye, but not presented in a way that makes them seem like villains who don't deserve to get the thing they desire. And I really liked that the movie could hold those two ideas in its mind at the same time. And that that set of complexities and kind of emotional clarity and wisdom about the people in the movie were to me what elevated it and made it seem truly great like the movie has no illusions that these people aren't monstrous and yet also it is incredibly sympathetic to and um detailed about the agonies of infertility and the heartbreak of trying and failing and trying and failing and trying all these different paths and learning all of these different byways and just the kind of limbo and suspend suspended animation of that yearning um and I, I loved the way the movie looked at its characters. It seemed really honest in some way. Yeah, it's not Noah Baumbach, right? It's not trying to push you to a place of just saying, like, these people are awful. Get them out of my face. Yeah, even though they are a little bit awful, but also mm -hmm. quite real. What do you think, Steve? Uh, well, a couple things. One is that um, I, I admired the movie for taking on a subject that it probably has entered one way or another into all of our adult lives, right? Because we know someone or are someone who's had trouble getting pregnant. And, um, you know, at second hand, you have some vague sense that it's an epic of indignity to try to, you know, do fertility treatments. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's grueling and uh, exhausting, very intense and humiliating, and very, very, very um, uh, frustrating. And, um, and and taken personally at the deepest possible level, and that someone made um, what counts as a completely honest look about what that means um, is uh, admirable. And, and that's just at an absolute first pass about this movie, because it is absolutely about that, but it's also much more about, as you go on, 
what their relationship is and where they are in their lives. And, and what the movie observes closely and with precision is what is it like to be successful in the creative class in terms of the actual work that you've produced and the recognition you may or may not have gotten from it, uh, while also living, um, somewhat hand to mouth and um, not at all expansively and to sort of still be the same person that you were when you were 28 um, even though now you're 48 uh, and and uh, she the filmmaker Tamara Jenkins posits with with a fairly high degree of clarity that this is the origin of the desperate need for the baby because other aspects of their lives maybe haven't pushed them through some obvious threshold into more, you know, mid, you know, middle adulthood. Um, and, um, and then the thing that the movie does brilliantly is after a while it becomes clear. It's not, a, I wouldn't say not at all a movie about trying to have, have a baby, but it, it really becomes a movie about these two people who um, are evading one another uh, emotionally and, and to a degree sexually uh, and are able to evade that evasion by thinking that this object, a baby, will come into their lives and transform it, which, as anyone who's had a kid knows, is is both profoundly true and absolutely untrue. I mean, it, it does change everything, but it tends to take what's there and intensify it um, along its points of, of fragility. Um, and I thought it was... Uh, I also, there was one thing I have to mention about this movie, which is it, it has... A deft touch when it comes to a certain kind of comedy. So, you know, the niece comes to live with them and the inflation of the inflatable mattress. I mean, there's something, as they say out there in Hollywood now, there's something highly specific about every aspect of this movie. You feel as though these people live in a claustrophobic apartment that's perfectly nice, but, uh, but has become quite small. And the blowing up of the mattress just puts you right into the, you know, reality of that apartment. But then there's this remarkable scene where she's talking about an old Harold Brodke story, which is every word of which is devoted to describing uh, an act of oral sex. And she she says, this bard dropout says, well, she's written a story that's kind of an answer uh, uh, to that story. And then you just get this shot of her short story, which she wants them to read co- coming out of a dot matrix printer. And you just, you just, you feel how fucking awkward it's going to be to have to read your niece's story about oral sex in the <laughs> tiny apartment. I mean, it just, it, it, it over and over and over again, like the pathos, the poignancy of the deflation of the um, inflatable mattress uh, relative to where you are in the story. I mean, I just thought that the, that the eye and ear of the filmmaker and the ri- screenwriter was, was really remarkable throughout, but it's painful and you don't really like them. And, um, but at the end I was, I was just so grateful I'd seen the movie. Well, and I also just think the movie is one of the best ends of a movie that I've ever seen. I love the ending of the movie. It's, there's a, there's a beautiful irresolution to it and a beautiful, moment i just loved i i I love this movie this conversation is making me love this movie more (laughs) well (laughs) that's well maybe that's sort of the problem with me i i don't think that i think i saw it doing all those things appreciated all the specificity appreciated the tonal suspension and yet maybe because of the tonal suspension never was able to quite place myself in it and maybe that's a critique of me and not a critique of the movie i think Mm -hmm. that there is a missing i mean ingu kang in her review for slate noted that we don't really 
understand why they want the baby. Steve, you've connected various dots and suggested that perhaps this is the move they've decided on, um, having reached a phase in their careers where their stars have ascended somewhere into the firmament, but not so far that the blinding heat of their fame and creative glory leaves no room for family life. And that's that might be why, but it also doesn't necessarily seem... We just don't quite know what the specific moment is that that drove them to this, and that missing piece. I think I think that I think Ingu is right that that piece is missing, and that you can read it the way you do, Steve, uh, as uh, something that they're using to fill up voids in their life, or the the fear of the of the great air mattress deflation that is death, or whatever else they're trying to to fight. Um, but there are also some suggestions that it's been a conversation they had over time and that it was something that uh, the Catherine Hahn character was ambivalent about because of what being a mother means in a creative life for a woman, which is a more um, sympathetic, I think, reason to delay having kids and then, or to me, more one I understand more deeply to delay having kids and then... Uh, you know, find yourself in this situation. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, there, there is, there is, you're right, Dana, that there is some ambiguity around their motives and the movie's regard for them. But somehow I found the act of sitting in that ambiguity and trying to figure it out and watch, I mean, just all three of the central performances and the performances from um, Molly Shannon and the actor who plays the stepfather of the, the, young me, Sadie, um, all of the performances in the movie are good, but just watching Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti, like that clip that we heard is worth fi- seeking out and watching online because the kind of exchanges of glances between Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn as they try and figure out, like, can we ask this? Who's going to ask it? It clearly should be Paul who asks it, but Catherine's the one who really wants him to ask, like just the the way in which they inhabit this couple. This They're such masters. Couple. And both of them getting to play parts they haven't gotten to play. I mean, in Catherine Hahn's case, as far as I can see, ever, right? She usually plays, first of all, a primarily comedic and not dramatic role. She's a, she's a friend in a supporting role. She's kind of the kooky one or the bitchy one, right? She doesn't sort of get to be the, the heroine who's struggling with conflicts. And so seeing her play that role, which is both comedic and dramatic, is fantastic. And then Paul Giamatti, seeing him get to sort of tone down, well, very much tone down his his billions edge and uh, and be this sort of um, shambling nebbish that he's so great at being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the one thing I would say before we uh, sign off here is that um, uh, I share all of Dana's ambivalences about the movie until the last scene, which casts its light backward uh, on everything that we've um, we've seen previously and tells you exactly that that filmmaker knew exactly what she was doing um, and thinking uh, in giving us these these characters, painful as they are um, and uh, painful as their experience is. Okay, the movie is Private Life. It is in a limited theatrical release, very limited theatrical release. So if you're uh, like me, a limited person, maybe you go see it in the movie theater. But if like Dana and Julia, you contain multitudes, maybe just watch it streaming. Okay, moving on. 
I will say, if you can see it in a movie theater, I wish I had because it's a beautiful. Yeah, movie. it's a it's a real movie movie. The images are. We haven't talked about how it looks and sounds, but it is carefully thought through, and all the music choices and everything that it it does is. I think very it would precise. be great to see it on a big screen, and I wish I had been able to. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we go any further, uh, Julia Turner, I'm guessing you got some business for us. I sure do. Uh, In Slate Plus today, we're going to answer a listener question uh, that is fitting, given that our third topic today encompasses the encounter between two megalomaniacs. It's a slightly megalomaniacal question, which is our listener asked, uh, if there were to be a museum about you three, the Gabfesters, in a museum exhibit in 100 years, what artifacts from your life would be in the exhibit? So I think there's a lot of ways to read that question and presumably lots of answers, so we will discuss. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. All right. Well, the doctor is in and she is now a woman. Uh, The actress Jodie Whittaker has taken over from Peter Capaldi to be the new star of the eternally running British sci-fi adventure cult series Doctor Who. Um, I'm just, you know, uh, ripping some stats off of the internet um, as we speak. 55 years of this show, 36 seasons, one TV movie, and 12 officially numbered doctors. I love that I'm going to be responsible for everything you hate about this show. (laughs) Okay, that voice you hear is Gabriel Roth, who is uh, editorial director of Slate Podcast. Gabe, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I have to say this TV show is um it it manages to be both kind of ubiquitous. Um it's I I've, I've surfed by it for literally probably what 40 years on television, maybe more, maybe almost close to all of its run. Um and never watched it once. Uh, I finally dug in. It makes no sense to me. I love Jodie Whittaker and whoever is show running the new one is tart and smart and utterly on point. I thought it was terrific TV. Um, but I still, the universe means almost nothing to me. So explain to me Doctor Who. Explain to me its its longevity, its appeal, and what it means that um, a woman is now the good doctor. Doctor Who is a British TV show that began in 1963. It first aired the day before the John F. Kennedy assassination. Uh, it was produced by the BBC's Children's Department, and it was an educational program that was about a time traveler who was going to take the viewers through history and show them important historical events, and thus you were going to learn about the Aztecs or about Marco Polo through the adventures of this time-traveling alien and his two companions. And it grew from there. It ran and ran. And pretty quickly, the actor who played the Doctor, which is the name of this time-traveling alien, uh, at the beginning, William Hartnell, he was quite old when the series started. And very quickly in the early episodes, you can see him forgetting his lines and sort of futzing around a little bit. And at a certain (laughs) point, 
they wanted to keep the show going, but they couldn't work with this guy anymore. And so they had him encounter a bunch of troublesome aliens and get wounded. And then he lies down on the ground and sort of goes all fuzzy. And then he what's called regenerates and turns into a completely different actor wearing a rumpled version of the same outfit who plays the part in a similar but sort of different way who is still the doctor but who is now the second doctor the doctor's second incarnation and that actor patrick troughton played the part for the next three series and then he himself regenerated into john pertwee who, who approached it more as an action hero and so built into the show is a way for the show to reinvent itself approximately every three or four seasons. And so now here we are in in 2018, 55 years later, and the same show is still running. It took a 16-year break in the middle, but it's still the same show. The the doctor that you guys saw in these episodes, Jodie Whittaker, is called the 13th Doctor because she is the 13th actor to play this part. Each of these actors gets to recreate the character in a way that suits their style and, and mien. And... Also, each regeneration allows the show to sometimes bring in a new showrunner, but to to reset the supporting cast and to give new viewers a chance to jump on. And so we have a show that began as like a BBC children's serial in 1963 is now, as you've seen, a sort of science fiction fantasy adventure program that runs on Saturday nights and is one of the most popular shows in, in Great Britain. And it's also very popular in the United States. It's an amazing phenomenon, in my opinion. Is it always great? It's definitely not always great. <laughs> Uh, but but it's an amazing and, and astonishingly rich 55-year text. Uh, that was a great summary. Should we listen to a clip? Let's do it. Hold on there, please, madam. I need you to do as I say. This could be a potential crime Why scene. Why are you calling me madam? Because you're a woman. Am I? Does it suit me? What? Oh, yeah. I remember. Sorry. Half an hour ago, I was a white-haired Scotsman. When's the next train due? This is the last one back. But the doors are locked. How did you both get in? Driver's window was smashed in. What's your name? PC Khan, Hallamshire Police. Name, not title. Yasmin Khan. Yas, to my friends. Can I have your name, please? When I can remember it. You don't know your own name? Of course I know it. Just can't remember it. It's right there on the tip of my... What's that? Tongue. Tongue! Smart boy. Biology. What did she call you? Ryan? Yeah, Ryan Sinclair. Good name. Are you a doctor, Ryan? No. Shame. I'm looking for a doctor. <laughs> Gabe, I have to admit, I have never been tempted to watch this show until now. And after that first uh, season premiere with Jodie Whittaker, I, I could be kind of, dare I say it, hooked a little bit. Um, Dana, I'm curious to know, what's your uh, what's your history with this franchise? <laughs> I was trying to figure out the first time in my life I felt like, oh, I can't watch Doctor Who because it would take too long to catch up. And it was in 1985. <laughs> 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 and I had a boyfriend in college who was a fan or former fan. I mean, he was still a fan, but but it was sort of one of his relics already. And he had the stripy scarf. Was it Tom Baker, yeah, the actor right. who Fourth wore doctor, the stripy Tom scarf? Baker. Yeah, so it was, it was in that era. And he loved the show and he talked about it in a similar way to you with this kind of enthusiasm, like it's this crazy, childlike, fun, you know, utterly unpredictable. Um, He compared it to Star Trek, the original Star Trek, which I'm a huge, huge fan of. And I was sort of tempted to get into it, but I just thought, no, there's too much backstory. It's exactly the kind of thing I would never be able to catch up with. But I would say to listeners who are thinking that or have been thinking that since 1985 or earlier, that it doesn't really matter. I tried the experiment of just jumping in with the first one first and then going back and watching as many. Julie and I were were both up incredibly late last night doing this, cramming in as many old versions as I possibly could. And 
there really is no stylistic continuity. I mean, how could there really be stylistic continuity between 1963 black and white British children's television and the present day, right? So what you also see, in addition to all these different ideas of of who the doctor is as a character, are, you know, different cultural mores, different fashions, different kinds of set design, different levels of of production value, right? Because the early ones are sub-original Star Trek in their production value. They really are just like salt shaker props, you know, used as aliens. And, uh, and all that stuff is really fun to trace. I can actually see now, it's not my kind of thing. Like, it's too, it's too intricately involved. It's too sort of whimsical sci-fi, but I utterly see the appeal. And you know who it reminds me of, and I suspect that this connection has been made many times, is Douglas Adams, the, the writer of, you know, all the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. Well, Douglas Adams was actually a script editor and a writer for ah, Doctor Who. He wrote many of sense. the most famous serials for Tom Baker. Okay, then that makes complete sense. But yeah, that, and, and that boyfriend, that ex of mine, was also a, a big reader of Douglas Adams. But that combination of... Of, you know, big cosmic ideas with very funny kind of Britishisms, like his the great Douglas Adams title, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. That's kind of the sensibility of, of a lot of these scripts, I find. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think a lot of people hear that there's a science fiction program that's been running for 60, for 55 years, and they think, okay, impossible. Like, obviously, the, that amount of densely knotted continuity is not something that I'm going to ever have any kind of access to. But in fact, for me, it's more helpful to think of Doctor Who as fantasy rather than science fiction. It's more about the magic. The technology involved is all hand-wavy and doesn't pretend to be some kind of advanced futuristic star fleet. It's a police box that can travel through space and time. <laughs> and what you wind up getting is less a sort of intricate uh, intricate narrative and more a machine for generating new stories every time. So if you keep watching the series, what you'll see is at the beginning of an episode, the TARDIS, the police box that's the Doctor's time machine, appears in a new place at the beginning of the episode. Here we are in this moment in Earth history. Here we are on this planet in the far future. There's an entirely new set of characters and problems. The Doctor has to sort them out. The comparison to Star Trek, I think, is really borne out by the essential humanism of the show. This is not a show in which problems are going to be solved by winning a battle. This is a show in which problems are going to be solved through uh, negotiation and persuasion and charisma teamwork. and teamwork. Exactly. I One of the things that strikes me as sort of quaint about your love for the explicit mechanisms of the show, like it's a show that reboots itself in its own plot, and it's a show where there's a box that is like, you know, it's like a printout of like, here's the story for this episode is like TV just does that now subterraneanly. Like it's not built in. They'll just be like, OK, now there's a new person playing the president or there's a new Darren or there's a new whatever. And it's not there's no regeneration mores or from what I've gleaned from my long, dark tea time of a night watching uh, <laughs> Doctor Who, <laughs> that, the, that, the, there, that there's kind of tropes of each regeneration that. Uh, you know, kind of stations that one goes through that become beloved to people who've watched the whole series. Um, like, cool that it has that, but like, you don't need that. Everybody just does that anyway without so much as a, as a how do you do? Um, and so there's something that seems kind of polite and courtly about the like, <laughs> like, well, here we're going to really, there's going to be a reason that there's a new person in, and we, you know, it's not just like, guess what? New Doctor Who. It's a woman now. Deal with it. <laughs> like it's it's there's something very British about that too. That it's like let's hold your hand through all of this. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the connection Dana and her old boyfriend were making to <laughs> Douglas Adams and and that whole world of British culture is that bringing the paratext into the text, right? Making the text understand something about itself as a story and having all of that be material as well as structural. Um, 
That's, That's cool. Yeah, we like that. That's cool. Oh, I don't think of that as being British. Well, think of Douglas Adams and the way his narrator interjects about the telling of the story in the in the context of the story. Right. I guess that's right. The, the other uh, striking parallel here, which is no doubt derivative to me, was Buffy. I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was just Buffy. It's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but British with space yep. instead of California and the Hellmouth. Like yep. they go up instead of down, but like it's the same thing. Basically, it just and by that I mean sort of B plus movie grade monsters, essentially, and effects. Um, high stakes within the plot of the show: death, uh, saving the world, um, the the relationship among the the plucky team of humans, unlikely humans tasked with these duties, um, and yet the tonal stakes of the show are are suppressed compared to the stakes of what's happening within the plot like you aren't on the edge of your seat being like oh god they're all gonna die because you know that it's like there's gonna be a monster of the week and that they're probably gonna beat this one just like they beat last one and towards the end of the season there might be one that's like a little harder and takes a few episodes to beat but you're not that worried even though you believe that they're very worried somehow and so it's kind of a cozy sort of monster universe. That's right. The show, as I said, it went off the air for 16 years and Buffy came out during those 16 years. And when the show came back in 2005... So you could argue that she's the 8.5th Doctor? You could make... I think people have made that case. Oh, God. Or or more often about Giles would Ah. would be the 8.5th Doctor from the Buffyverse. But certainly when the show came back in 2005, it had learned the lessons of Buffy. Buffy was the show that figured out how to do contemporary TV sci-fi in a way that was engaging but could be done on a television budget as opposed to a Star Wars budget. Interesting. Has has Joss Whedon suggested that he was inspired by Doctor Who? I'm not aware of that, although Joss Whedon has suggested that he was inspired by almost everything, so probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Does, do the different doctors all know about each other, or does that change series to series to series? Do they remember their previous incarnations? They remember them sometimes in in uh, dim ways. They don't always have a clear memory of everything that's ever because the doctor's been alive for a million years, and well, so he doesn't remember everything. He or she doesn't remember everything. But sometimes, due to the nature of time travel, they get to meet one another. Like the doctor gets to intersect with her or his past self. Um, and those crossover episodes obviously are intensely cherished. This is one that I didn't get to last night because I figured it was such a one-off that it wouldn't be part of our discussion, but I really want to watch the one episode where John Hurt plays Doctor Who, mm. and apparently he meets some of his future he and past selves. He meets Matt Smith and, and David Tennant, who were the uh, what uh, tw- the 10th and 11th Doctor. Uh, God, you know them like the presidents or something. It's, <laughs> it's I just I love the idea that the, the canonicity of the Hurt one episode is accepted, even though it was only one that, you know, that the Doctor Who heads accepted as, as part of canon because it's John Hurt. I'm sure he killed it. Sure. And also the n- whole notion of canon is much different and better in Doctor Who than it is in something like Star Wars or Star Trek, because when you have a guy who's traveling around time, when you have a show that jumps around time all the time, everything is canon. Everything that has ever happened is canon. And then anything that hasn't happened is just something that hasn't happened yet. And it might have happened at some other point. And so saying, well, this happened in this order doesn't quite make sense. And so there, there's a tendency to just like, yeah, if there's another, if he was John Hurt for a little while, throw that in there too. Like everything fits in the box of Doctor Who. That's exactly where canonicity should go, exactly. in my opinion. Like open it out. Exactly. Right. No, it's it's like a mythology that 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 in its constraints allows for everything. Yes. Which is nice. Yes. 
What a cozy universe. Oh, I'm so glad you guys are seeing this. <laughs> I'm not like, and I will say I, I've sampled a bunch of different uh, episodes, including one where a very young Carrie Mulligan was in the mix. Oh, yeah. That was her, one of her first things. Blink, one of the big episodes. Yeah. Uh, also one where Peter Capaldi was like stuck in some puzzle box tower talking to himself. And I was like, this isn't good for me at this point in my understanding of the show. <laughs> I can see why if someone would get to a place where this would be a very striking and interesting episode. But goodbye. Good luck getting out of the tower. <laughs> well, isn't that where it supposedly went during the Capaldi years? I mean, this is based on my reading, not having watched many of those, but... It got very intricately involved in its own mythology, right? Well, so the Capaldi episodes and the ones with Matt Smith, who was the doctor before Capaldi, were uh, executive produced. The showrunner on those episodes was Stephen Moffat, who is a brilliant scriptwriter and who comes from uh, sort of farcical sitcoms, who's very good at creating puzzle box types of plots in which a bunch of different mechanics unfold in order to produce a surprising but unexpectedly inevitable result. And that led to a lot of time travel paradox type stories. And and the doctor had a a wife who was living in a chronology that ran backwards from his own. And so we first see her in the episode in which she dies. And the final episode we see is the one in which they meet. And um, it became sort of a little more of a brain teaser type of show. Uh, and the new series is is executive produced by a different showrunner, Chris Chibnall, uh, who does not come from that kind of background, who is going to be a much more meat and potatoes, like adventure story kind of showrunner. It's probably time for that. I'm a Stephen Moffat fan. I'm going to miss that version of the show, but I, I think it's probably time for a reset once we got to the doctor trapped in a puzzle box, uh, trapped in a in a tower trying to escape episode. All right. Well, I, uh, so I consider me trending in the direction of convert. Um, Gabe, that's quite an achievement. I never thought I would crack the nut of the show, but um, thanks for coming on and talking to us about Doctor Who. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, well, perturbingly outspoken Kanye West showed up at the White House this past week. This after an appearance on Saturday Night Live in which he, uh, during which he wore a MAGA cap and made an impromptu speech in favor of Donald Trump. Um, why don't we listen to a clip from his visit to the White House, which, of course, has a lot of people agog, to put it mildly. You expect that if you're black, you have to be Democrat. I have, a, uh, I've, I've have conversations that basically said that welfare is the reason why a lot of black people end up being Democrat. They say, you know, first of all, it's, it, it's a limit to amount of jobs. Uh, so the, the fathers lose the jobs and they say, we'll give you more money for having more kids in your home. And then we got rid of the mental health institutes in the 80s and the 90s and the prison rates just shot up. And now you have Chirac, what people call Chirac, which is actually our uh, murder rate is going down by 20%. Oh, Julia, I am just going to toss this hot potato right at you. Um, And, uh, you know, here you have, uh, you know, here you have in some, by some people's estimation, one of the greatest rappers of all time, parroting right wing talking points and sucking up to uh, a dictatorial boob uh, who is our president. Um, What's going on here? Oh, I find myself confounded by this because I generally operate by the principle and we on this show generally operate by the principle that everything is a readable text, right? Like the point where we're culture critics, sometimes we're talking about a movie or a TV show and sometimes we're talking about a moment 
uh, in the culture or a trend or other ephemeral bit or bob and what it might mean. And we read so many smart pieces in preparing for the segment that read this moment and read Kanye's political turn. And we should stipulate here where we've talked about Kanye as an artist before and we will no doubt do so again. Um, but we're focused here particularly on his political speech over the last few months. Um, and put it in all kinds of contexts. Jelani Cobb called him, a, a, you know, kind of suggested that both he and Trump showcase the dangers of thoughtless contrarianism. Um, you know, others have tracked the history of it. I just see him as unwell. Like he just seems off kilter to me in a way that sometimes famous people come to seem. And you and I feel that I can't quite understand or know or speculate as to the nature of that unwellness. And, you know, there's also a bunch of stuff in there that lots of people think and believe in 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 his remarks at the white house and maybe he's not unwell at all that and and that's a condescending way to view his views but i just find myself trying to look at the spectacle and derive meaning from it and feeling like this talented artist is uh unwell in some way and it makes me feel squicky about trying to dissect it too closely am i just do i is that just convenient am i is it just convenient for me to assume that his political beliefs that seem wrong and um at odds with a lot of his work although not all of it uh shouldn't be taken seriously because i'm choosing to see them as like a symptom of fame gone wrong I mean, what would it be to take them seriously? I think that's really well put, is that maybe we've come up against a text that either reads itself or just somehow is is opaque. It's so the whole the fact it, it somehow put into relief the whole fact that this is all happening being so bizarre. Right. I mean, the idea that a spectacle of particular bizarreness is taking place in the Oval Office because Kanye is there going off on. I mean, it's really hard to sit through the full length of his rant because it is almost like the movie Network and watching someone just lose their mind in in public. And granted, this is coming from someone without a lot of investment in Kanye as an as an artist. But just seeing a person unravel in that way is is really upsetting and disturbing. Something that I feel the need to point out is utterly of a piece with prior statements Kanye has made, though, is the fact that part of what he is now building his, you know, theoretical support for Trump on is misogyny, right? I mean, there's this moment when he says, oh, the dragon energy, the male energy, maybe dragon energy wasn't this rant. That was his earlier Twitter rant. But doesn't he say something about it's because of Trump's male energy that I feel the need to support him? And I couldn't vote for Hillary because boys can't bounce basketballs with their fathers if we have a woman president. And there's a there's a very clear foundational block that he lays down of just like, at least he's a man. And I feel the need to point that out because there have been a lot of Kanye moments in the past where his misogyny or his placing of himself, I mean, pushing Taylor Swift out of the way at the VMAs all those years ago, when there's a moment when it comes down to man versus woman and the woman gets pushed out of the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that part is incredibly disturbing and also reflects back on, you know, aspects of his work where or lines in his work that I've just kind of squinted through because I like the beat and the chorus so much that are totally yucky in, in what they describe in terms of treatment of women. And on the other hand, he is, you know, from what we can tell from outside, uh, in a 
happy marriage with Kim Kardashian, who both posits like a ludicrously exaggerated version of femininity that um, highlights, you know, sort of fuckability and baby voicedness and uh, cultivated cultivating being the object of people's gaze and attention, right? Maybe not the full spectrum of femininity that that uh, one might engage, at least in how she presents herself, but who is also like one of the preeminent businesswomen. Like Kim Kardashian is a badass and a very strong woman for all that she is a strong woman at performing a different type of woman who is strong for her desirability rather than her business acumen. But she is like a actually quite potent woman pretending to be a different kind of potent woman. And that's interesting to contemplate, too, I think. I mean, maybe she should use some of that potency to speak out about what her husband is doing to millions and millions of people's minds. I I, I find it so irresponsible that if it is the case that he is bipolar or mentally unstable in some way and is being allowed to unravel like this in public because he's a celebrity who likes adjacency to power, then his loved ones are really failing him. I'm sorry if that Mm -hmm. sounds judgy, but, you know, I, I would not want my family to abandon me to that kind of public humiliation. And we should note that Kim Kardashian West this past spring tweeted about this very subject and said to the media trying to demonize my husband, let me just say this. Your commentary on Kanye being erratic and his tweets being disturbing is actually scary. So quick to label him as having mental health issues for just being himself when he has always been expressive is not fair. So called out by strong woman Kim Kardashian West for my instinctive response. So maybe I want to try to locate a point of overlap between a possible, you know, at, at a distance, you know, mental health, you know, armchair mental health diagnosis of um, not only Kanye, but the president with um, what both Kanye and the president seem to share as a, as a worldview and, and a set of beliefs and self-beliefs, which is a kind of psychosis. I mean, to my mind, it's a kind of psychosis, even, even if it's not found strictly within the DSM, but it's kind of the American religion of self-help, uh, you know, as derived from, you know, a lot of different 19th century texts, but principally from, in, in our century, from Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, and it's a, you know, at its root is a fallacy about success as the fruit of nothing but an individual's own will to power, which is not true, demonstrably not true, empirically not true. Um, and um, and the culture has really turned against this mythology, especially since 2008 and the, uh, you know, utter collapse of uh, financial markets, which had propped up the lie for pretty much a generation. And, um, for someone like, you know, Kanye, you know, I think trying to demonstrate that race is not an inhibitor, um, you know, is very much of a piece with Trump's need to completely, totally hide from view his inheritance from his father. Um, because uh, in Trump's case, it completely puts the lie to the idea that that Trump's success is the fruit, not only it, not only is it not the fruit of his own individual will to power, it's not even remotely the fruit of his own acumen, uh, his own shrewdness, uh, his own visionary capacities as an entrepreneur. You know, it's been demonstrated over and over again that the man would be many times 
wealthier. Even, even at the high end of estimates of his wealth, he'd be many times wealthier if he had thrown darts at the stock page of the Wall Street Journal back in 1975 when his father shenaniganned uh, an inher- a tax-free, virtually tax-free, if not entirely tax-free inheritance, allegedly, uh, to Donald Trump. And um, so it's this, you know, this, you know, Kanye bears the burden of both being, um, you know, a black rapper, which is, you know, uh, obviously all about drawing upon um, a certain kind of received racial identity and playing upon it and transcending it in many ways. Um, At the same time, he utterly rejects many of the frameworks through which Black Americans describe their own experience, um, you know, as being structurally inhibited by the fact of their own race. And so in this kind of psychotic self-help way, he needs to completely falsify all of what we know sociologically, historically, and economically about the fate of black people in this country. And that to me is just a profoundly depressing spectacle, regardless of whether its origin is bipolarity or just being a fucking raging narcissist. Yeah, but in some ways they're downplaying the structural forces at play and their origins in opposite directions, right? Donald Trump is claiming uh, that he did not have opportunities that he had and that he made himself up from nothing. And, you know, Kanye is sort of disassociating himself from a reading of some of the structural forces that affect outcomes for black people growing up in America uh, in ways that I think lots of his fans find alienating, but it's a slight, it's a slightly different thing. I mean, each of them. Well, no, but it's the source. The source is the same thing though. It's this, it's, 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 they're doing it for exactly the same reason. They're on, they're supposedly improbable, but actually quite plausible, uh, wavelength with one another. But despite this kind of twinship between them, this sort of grotesque twinship that you see in that in that scene in the Oval Office, what manifests in Trump as this grotesquely disproportionate self-love, right? Because he's in the position of power, the position of power, both as a white man and as the president of the United States. And Kanye manifests this grotesque self-loathing, right? I mean, it's a black man from Chicago talking about himself from the perspective of this other kind of power. And that I think it's that combination that makes the moment so poisonously hard to watch. I mean, if it is the case that this is not watching somebody mentally unravel in public, then the only other alternative left is is Obama's judgment, which still makes sense to me, which is he's just a jackass, a talented jackass. And I tend to believe the former more because because I don't think that sheer trolling and contrarianism could get you quite to the point that Kanye West is currently at, where, I mean, we haven't talked about some of the really, really dangerously stupid things that he's tweeted recently, like talking about the 13th Amendment should never have been passed, which is the amendment that abolished slavery. I mean, he... I meant slavery being a choice. Slavery being a choice, which was probably six months ago now. I mean, it's been a very long time that he's been saying things to his millions and millions of followers that are dangerous and crazy. I was trying to, we were talking about this last night because I was reading up for this segment talking about Kanye with my daughter and she being only 12 has only known Kanye as a superstar and uh, in fact was born the year after his famous George Bush doesn't care about black people outburst during the the post-Katrina telethon. And to her, the idea, and I was describing that moment to her and saying, you know, he really came into people's consciousness, a lot of people who didn't know his music for the first time when he said this shocking thing on national television that um, many people regarded as as daring, um, but but that also earned him a lot of condemnation. And she was genuinely surprised. She could not imagine a Kanye that was not part of the kind of Kimye, you know, fame caravan that, that he's now associated with. And of course, you know, she's a 
affluent white girl. So what difference does it make to her whether Kanye is saying crazy stuff or not? But there are lots and lots and lots of kids who are hearing that stuff and putting their worldview together from it. And the idea that he's talking about how young black men need fathers and it's so tragic that Hillary Clinton as president would have kept them from bouncing basketballs with their dad just seems like a massive betrayal of all the little boys who look up to him and look for some sort of form of truth or guidance. All right. We've read the text, guys. Such as it is. <laughs> All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day not. What do you have? This week, I owe both my endorsements to our great production assistant, Alex Barish, because they both come from our prep document for the show. The whole time we were talking about Kanye, I was very well aware that the three of us are white people. I don't think that makes it wrong for us to talk about Kanye going to the White House. That's an event that belongs to every American to talk about. But obviously, black Americans bring a different history to that encounter than we do. And so I wanted to recommend two great documents um, that we read in, in prep for that segment, one of which I think I've endorsed before on the show. It's ta Coates's piece, I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye, which came out back in, in May, I believe, during one of these earlier um, strange Twitter threads and, you know, an earlier kind of eruption of Kanye into the political space. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece that is is much about Michael Jackson and Tanahasi's childhood infatuation with Michael Jackson and watching him on TV, and then slowly segues into a discussion about blackness and whiteness and owning one's blackness as a celebrity, and therefore Kanye and Trump. And it's just a, a triumphant and yet extremely sad and broken in its way piece of writing, just just a triumph. Um, so I'm not black. I'm Kanye by Tanahasi Coates. And also, and this harks back to our wonderful guest from last week, Wesley Morris, the episode of Still Processing, the New York Times podcast. That's a, a weekly discussion between Wesley and the New York Times critic Jenna Wortham. They did an episode on Kanye, which also, like the Tanahasi Coates piece, was well before this this White House encounter. It was back last summer, I believe. And uh, and they just talk about you know what Kanye's music has meant to them and what it means to see this person in a completely different light and to wonder whether they can essentially still have Kanye's music while disavowing the uh, the decisions that he's making in his personal life. It's only 18 minutes long and it's a great funny discussion that also is just sort of a great starter episode of that podcast if you if you want to get into it. Uh, all right, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to go full Steve on this endorsement and recommend something local, although local to New York City, a place that lots of people live in and lots of people visit. My recommendation is for Underwest Donuts. This is a donut car wash on the west side of Manhattan. It's right across from the Intrepid Air and Space Museum or whatever that thing is called. The Intrepid, it's a big aircraft carrier that's docked and has lots of vehicles on it. I've actually somehow never been there, although my children have gone many times. It is a very small donut shop inside a car wash, like just tucked into a car wash. So cars could go by and get washed while you're in this little sliver of a shop that has very delicious donuts. They have some kind of cakey frosted donuts with unusual flavors like honeycomb and um, they have a signature car wash flavor that's very good. Uh, and then they will also like squeeze you out of fresh dough and deep fry in front of your face a fresh donut uh, if they still have enough batter. And it is, um, those are also quite delicious. So the donuts the, the, the question with any Instagrammable hipster secret location food place is, is the food good enough to warrant going to the West Side Highway to a car wash for donuts? And I would argue that, yes, the donuts are that good. And so you should go to Underwest Donuts. 
That I thought is a fantastic idea. Can I also just point out that the person who's about to move to L.A. endorsing a donut car wash is just so perfect. <laughs> just donuts and car washes are two things that seem so L.A. centric. And it was in that donut car wash that I made my decision. <laughs> that is not true. Oh but. Um, <laughs> Julia, I just have one thing to say here. Yes. Never go full, Steve. <laughs> it's the first law of show business. Um, all right, uh, I'm going to hat tip Joe Hagan, author of the uh, wonderful biography of uh, Jan Wenner, editor of Rolling Stone, who in his Twitter feed a couple days ago started talking about Duke Ellington and uh, that that lesser known part of Ellington's oeuvre um, in which he begins laying down a style that Monk, Thelonious Monk would pick up on, um, a kind of you know thicker, denser chord structure, maybe a little more modern sounding, less self-consciously polished and elegant, but nonetheless polished, elegant, very, very, very beautiful piano playing. From the early 50s, uh, the record is called Piano Reflections, uh, trio and solo work from right around 1953. Uh, Hagen says top five albums in any genre for him. I put it on immediately after I read that tweet. Completely the real deal. I mean, it's just Ellington in a small group setting, uh, being an exquisite pianist. Um, and, uh, and, and forward, forward looking too, in a way that's really interesting that looks forward to bop. Um, listen to it. It's fucking awesome. Uh, and then I'm going to go full Steve. Only I can go full Steve. Okay. Uh, okay. And, um, I want to add to my Hudson Valley. I've been getting a lot of emails about Hudson Valley recommendations. I am so happy to cut and paste and send out, um, the places that I love, um, near where I live, the only um, requirement is that you report back uh, after you go. But I found something. Can I just something- say, uh, if only we had some kind of like technical place where we could like post a like a li- a running list of things. Like God, if there was just some way we could gather Steve's Hudson <laughs> Valley recommendations and make them <laughs> frequently publicly available to anyone who wanted to know about them at like a specific web address. Ah, gosh fuck you jesus god no i'm just saying we should publish it as like a standing page steve's hudson valley uh link link linkapalooza i would love a linkapalooza i thought you were twitting me because it's so easy to do that no i just like you keep emailing people and responding personally to people's notes with your kind recommendations and your list is ever evolving but like let's just round them up and publish them on slate.com while i still have the keys (laughs) No, that's true, but you're still boss lady. But I mean, the, the truth is I'm a sad and lonely country mouse and I love responding to these emails. I don't, All right. I have, you know, anyway, but yes. All right, I won't do... deprive you. Ooh, Alex Barish reminds me that we have a happy medium here, which is that if you are a Slate Plus member, if you're a paying Slate Plus member, you can go to the Slate Podcast Recommendations database available to Slate Plus members only. And if you filter there for Culture Gab Fest, Stephen Metcalf locations, you'll basically get the thing that I just said could exist on a website. It does exist on a website, but it's only for Plus members. So this is the perfect medium because uh, that means some of you will still have to email Steve. I, I found something. So for years now, I've been doing my my bodega, such as it is in the Hudson Valley, is called the Chatham Berry Farm. And it, it's amazing. They do some of their own, like they do some of their own butchering. They do these amazing sausages. They they're a totally solar off-grid farm with their own hoop houses that uh, extend their growing seasons quite far. So they're using that sort of famous four-season farming method by Coleman or whatever his name is up in Maine. They're just cool. They're great. Family-run business, father and his sons. And the sons um, 
took over this one aspect of it and tried to start a, I think, a beer brewing thing that that for licensing reasons maybe they had some issues with. But what I didn't realize is they've they've started something they call the the cidery, C I D E R Y. Every Friday night in one of the hoop houses out back, they've got a little, um, they've got these. Um, you know, like little propane heat lamps that are actually quite elegant. They're really, um, really beautifully made. And they've got beer, locally made beer, cider. Uh, I'm not sure if the wine is local. And then a food truck from the area comes and parks. And like, la- I-, I went for the first time last weekend. It is such a scene. I mean, I'm telling you, it out Brooklyn's Brooklyn. It is, it's, it's very, very, very well done. Friday nights at the Chatham Berry Farm. It's, they're going to continue, because it's a hoop house and it contains heat. So efficiently, they're going to keep doing this until uh, uh, essentially Christmas. And they've got a like a little uh, campfire out back in the more open air part. Kids, grownups, hipsters, non-hipsters, locals, uh, Brooklyn refugees such as myself, a food truck, uh, open flame, beer, cider, wine. Uh, it's it's heaven. I mean, it's, it's really, I have to say, it is actually great what they've done. So check it out. All right. Fantastic. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Gabriel Roth, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 